Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. Noble Warriors, where I interview heart-centered entrepreneurs about their spiritual disciplines with deconstructed mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, so you can take them and engineer your life with more impact and fulfillment. If you have any entrepreneur friends who are reinventing themselves, who could use more inspiration, please share this episode with them. They'll thank you for it. My guest is Javon McCormick. He was born the son of a black pen father and a white orphan mother. He's made millions in the stock market, even though he didn't go to college. He serves as a board member for Conscious Capitalism. Today, he's the CEO of Scribe Media, a multi-million dollar publishing company with more than 1,700 authors, including members of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, Nassim Taleb, David Goggins, whose blockbuster book, Can't Hurt Me, has sold more than 2 million copies. Javon and I, we talked about why he said negativity never solved anything in spite of being raised in a negative environment that could easily lead to cynicism. How he found his calling in business at the back of his father's car. Why he focused on God, health, family, business, and investing only and is cutthroat with everything else. How he broke the intergenerational pattern to create his greatest accomplishment, that is his family. How he uses gratitude to bring himself and his employees back to focus. Why his unstable childhood became the source of his extraordinary EQ and social intelligence. Why confidence was all he had and how that brought him success and fulfillment. Why he printed only five copies of his book instead of making it public first and why he believes listening and surrounding yourself with great people far smarter than you is the secret to running a multi-million dollar business, and why he thinks CEOs are over-celebrated on why people process and profit and going three layers deep is the way to go. He also shared with us his three-step advice to young people who are reinventing themselves during this time. Please enjoy my conversation with Javon J.T. McCormick, the CEO of Scribe Media. Please welcome Javon McCormick. My man, CK. What's going on, sir? Thank you so much for being here, Javon. I, I so, so appreciate you. From the moment that I heard about you, the moment you told your stories, and some, you know, some of the time that we converse with uh, each other, uh, you're the real deal. But... If you can bring us back to a little bit, for those that don't really know your story, bring us back to you know, the circumstances that you were born into and how you faced the worst of humanity. Just paint a little picture for us. That would be a really great place for you, us to you, start. You touched on a little bit there in the, the introduction. Yeah, my, my father was a, a black pimp and drug dealer in the 1970s. And in addition to that, my, my father also fathered 23 children. So I'm, I'm one of 23. Uh, my mother was a, uh, an orphan. She grew up in a 1950s institutional orphanage where the, the kids were routinely beat, abused, neglected. Uh, when my mom turned 17 years old, they gave her a, um, they gave her $20, a small suitcase. And they said, good luck to you. There's a world. And she had never been outside those, those four walls. So that's what I came into the, the world to. And, and I, I grew up 
uh, in extreme poverty. Now, when I say extreme poverty, U.S. poverty, because being you know poor in the United States is a lot different than being poor in some some other countries. Uh, but for here in the United States, we we grew up very poor. Uh, I was that kid that at times I would eat out of the trash can to have something to eat. I was that kid that because I got free welfare lunch at school, I, I would eat Friday at lunch and I wouldn't eat again until Monday at, at lunch. Oh man, I was, gosh, I was in and out of juvenile three different times as a kid. One of my dad's prostitutes um, sexually molested me from the ages of six, seven, eight years old. I don't have, I, I've got a GED. Uh, I don't have a college degree and here I am, man. And so there's a, there's a lot more in between there, but there there's the uh, there's the base of it. I I I, I mean, it sounds like a movie, literally. From, it sounds like uh, the pursuit of happiness, uh, the the time when he was stuck in the subway. It's, it sounds like you know part of the Mad Men episode. You know, flashing back. Um, but the way you tell it is, you were just rattling off some some script i mean how did you i guess how how did you maintain this optimism because you know i feel it like you are a beacon of light and it's so easy for you to go down to a space of cynicism and no possibility how did you go from that in my mind darkness to you know the positive person that you are today CK, I feel a, a lot of it is just you, you don't know what you don't know. So at times I didn't know I was poor. You know, it's just this was the circumstances. There were other kids around me who were in the same circumstances. So you know, a lot of it was just, OK, this is where I am. And, and what do you do to, to make the most of it? And you, you found peace and happiness within some of that that chaos and, and that fractured uh, upbringing. Don't get me wrong. A lot of ugliness in between there as well. And I, like you said, it goes off as a script. Well, I, I look at it this way. It was my life. That's how I grew up. I, I am not a victim. I refuse to let my background allow me to be a victim. I can't change the past. I can't change any of it. I can't change who my father was. I can't change who my mother was. You know, I, I'll even share this with you. I am truly the product of an abortion. What I mean by that is my mom had an abortion before she had me. The abortion was so bad. The second time she got pregnant, she made the choice to say, okay, I'm just going to give birth to, to this child versus have an abortion. I, I'm okay with that. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. I, I've, I've spoken with my mother and I've told her, you know, you, you should have never had a child and, and that's okay. She shouldn't have, she, she didn't, there were times where my mother and I were raising each other. We were learning things at the same time. So I'm, I'm going to leveling challenge you this a bit because the way you phrase is, you know, you're like a walking Buddha almost, right? Hey, all these circumstances happen. I'm just going to rise above. I agree with you 100%. And in that moment, when people are calling you names, when they're being racist at you, when they're beating you, when they, when you're hungry, when you're <laughs> humiliated, when you're being, you know, sexually molested, I mean, like it didn't just happen, right? So that was a dark space. I and mean, when you're receiving all of those abuse, the worst of humanity has to offer, how did you go from that darkness to equanimity? 
and ultimately to forgiveness, to love. Like that is, in my mind, the the extraordinary path that you took on. It's 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 funny. You 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 rolled off. You said the name calling, and I hadn't thought about this this story in quite some time. I I remember as a kid because I, I'm half white, half black. And I remember as a kid, you know, white, white people didn't like me because I was half black. Black people didn't like me because I was half white. You know, I was never black enough. I was never white enough. And but one particular time, you know, kids would always tease me, call me Oreo cookie, call me zebra, chocolate, vanilla swirl, color confused, half breed. I mean, all, all, anything you can think that has they, they can mix. Yeah, that no up. mercy. Just yeah, there was z- zero. Yeah, I walked in the class one time. And at my desk, this kid had put, I'm going to show my age on this. This kid had put a Polaroid picture on my desk and it was a picture of a zebra. Man, crushed me, crushed me because there wasn't anything I I could say. I I had learned to be, you know, quick witted and and make fun of other kids and, and joke and go back and forth. But when I saw that picture... I'm half white, half black, and you you call me a zebra, and I just remember, just I, I felt just decimated at, at the time. Um, but I, you want to say, how did I rise above? I took all those little things that were happening to me and going on, and I always found a way to. How do I use these for positive? How do I get better? How do I learn from these circumstances? You know, what one story that I've recently opened up with, and because I never told this story before, I was embarrassed of it. My first lesson in business came from a dark place. And it was one, one weekend, my father had me, and we were out collecting money from prostitutes. I was sitting in the front seat. I just remember it was cold outside. And we pull up to the first lady, and he cracks the window. It's every time I tell the story, I can smell the heater in the car every time I tell the story. So he cracked the window and she she slid through a stack, a stack of cash and she asked my dad, hey, can I come in? You know, I, I made my account. I made my money. And he's like, no, 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 you're on a roll. And, you know, he encouraged her, get back out there, keep, keep it going, you know, real positive. And so he rolled up the window. We drove off and we went over to the next lady and she slid her money in. And it was short, you know, her, her stack wasn't as big and my dad lost his damn mind. Get your ass back out there. And they called her every name you can think of. And I remember when he rolled up the window and we drove off, I said to myself, huh? And I'm nine. I remember this. I said, I wonder if I treated the prostitutes better and let them keep part of the money could I have more prostitutes and make more money in volume because they'd want to work with me? And then ultimately I'd be the, the king pimp, if you will. And then I thought, okay, but wait a minute. A lot of other pimps are going to be mad because I'm going to take their, their women. And I was having this full-blown conversation with myself at nine on how do you scale this business? And when I, when I look back, I feel like I was I'm doing in life exactly what I was meant to do, which was was business. And because at nine years old with prostitutes, that was my early entry into the business world. And I, I wanted to know how you did it better. How do you put people first? How do you treat them better? How do you scale it? Um, but I, I to, to directly answer your question, 
I always tried to find the positives in negative situations. And, and I can go back so far as a kid and remember that, um, be it putting up the Christmas tree with my mom, we had this little three foot Christmas tree because we didn't have much money. And we literally had maybe 15 decorations and my mom would have us hang up one decoration, stand back, look at it. And, and th because it would take longer. And so it seems like we had more decorations, but that was a positive. And I always tried to find the positives in, in every negative situation that, that I was in. Mm, I appreciate that. Um, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, so I'll make it personal also. It's, it's when you're in a dark place, it's easy to train your inner dialogue, your inner narrative to say, I'll show you as a mm -hmm. come from place to do something. Right. But the way I experience you is not that it's, it's not, I'll show you rather it's, Hey, learn from the positive, you know, coming from love and compassion and, and, and then use that as a source of fuel rather than that, you know, I'll show you as a source of fuel. So I was curious to know how you, perhaps at one point you were in that, I'll show you, you know, that source of fuel to then you transition to, you know, Hey, coming from a place of love and empathy and compassion. So I was more curious of that internal um, narrative shift. If, if, if there was any, the, the place of love and, and not feeling a, a, a desire to have to prove something that really came later on in life because everything for me was having to prove something it, mainly to, to myself. It wasn't to anyone. It was prove that, okay, I'm not going back to the hood, prove that I can make money, prove that I can figure this job out, prove that I can feel it was, it was always proving something to my, myself. It wasn't, I'll, I'll show you. It was more proving that I could do it, that, that, regardless of the circumstances, I could, could do it. And what be, here, here's what became very critical for me. I always believed if I saw someone else who had already done it, okay, then I can do it. And I always believed that. And, and re regardless if it was true or not, I, I believed I'm like, okay, they did it. So then why can't I do it? And you know, it, it's even this, uh, CK, even I've heard so many people say, well, it's not fair that a minority has to work a hundred times harder than a white person to achieve the same success. And for me, I've always looked at it as, okay, great. It may not be fair, but if I got to work a hundred times harder and I got to be a hundred times better, that's exactly how I see it. I'm just a hundred times better than you. So I'll, I'll make myself shine. And I, and again, that's me. Where's the positive in this? Because I learned a long time ago, life isn't fair. It isn't, it isn't fair. It's never going to be fair. So put that shit aside and focus on, okay, what are we going to accomplish with this? Yeah. There's a phrase, uh, don't wish it's easier, wish you're better. And yeah. that's, that's, well, that's what you've taken on. Even this, I, you know, the dark place you talked about. If I go to my bed right now and I pull the covers over my head, and I sit there and I say, okay, why me? Why was I born to a, a, a pimp father? Why am I one of 23 kids? Why was my mother an orphan? Why is it to this day I still don't know where my last name comes from? 
I have no clue. My mom got the last name McCormick in the uh, orphanage, and we don't know where it comes from. What you know? So I can lay there and say, why, 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 why? Doesn't change anything. I can't change the past. I can't change what I was born to. But I figured out early on. Okay, I can change tomorrow. I can change the next day. I can change the next hour. And that became the focus. What can you change? And let's work on, on, on that. Because I can't change who I was born to. I can't change my race. I, <laughs> hell, God knows to this day. A lot of people out there probably don't like me. Oh, well. And so I focus on what what can I have a hand in in changing? Yeah. So so if you don't mind getting into that. So I'll contextualize my question a bit. Um, the internal dialogue, the internal, the tone of the internal voice determines the quali one's quality of life. Um, and sharing it personally, the tone my internal voice used to speak to me is this harsh critic. Nothing is ever good enough. And my experience of life was complete misery. Even though on the outside, you know, I have all the achievement, the accomplishment, and all the beautiful things, right? And, and then I had to take on this journey of changing this tone or tame rather, right? And transform this tone into more loving and nurturing such that my, my experience of life is more uh, fulfilling that way. So I'm curious to know, was there any, like how does your internal voice speak to you? Oh, such man, okay. that you show up so bright. I appreciate that. This actually was developed in in my childhood because of the harsh circumstances I grew up in, because on any given day I was going to get in a fight. Someone, you know, teased me, didn't like me, you know, called me half breed, what, whatever, uh, made fun of me because I had holes in my shoes, whatever the case. I remember I used to get teased a lot for having a white mother. I remember at times I used to be embarrassed of that. I used to be embarrassed that I had a white mom. Why? You know, that, that was ridiculous. Um, but I remember you ha I had to make a choice early on. You can wake up timid and meek in a weak mindset, or you can wake up confident. And at times, confidence was all I had. It, it was free. And, you know, it didn't cost me anything. And so it was, okay, I'm going to be confident today. And confidence got me through life sometimes because it was all I had. I may not have had food. I may not have had money. We may not have had electricity, water, but I had confidence. And that's confidence got me through many a day. Um, because when you walk through that alley, you walk to school, you walk through some of those halls at school, all you had was confidence on your shoulder because I didn't have the nice clothes. I, I didn't have lunch money. I, I didn't have a, a good home to go to, but damn it, I had confidence. And that's that confident. Even today, <laughs> when I talk to myself, you ask me, what's the internal dialogue? Um, one of positivity, one of confidence, one of belief. I, I don't hope, I don't wish, and I don't use the word luck. So I don't use hope, wish, or luck. Those three words were eliminated out of my vocabulary as a kid. Mm. What's the difference between bravado and confidence? You're going to laugh at me because um, I, I don't even know what bravado means. <laughs> <laughs> bravado hey, is, is I in. own it. I, I, will, I don't run. I, I sit in meetings to this day and, and I'll stop the meeting. I'm like, okay, what's that word mean? I, I don't even know what bra bravado no, it's, means. It's great. I, appreciate, I mean, to me, that's a sign of someone who's confident. If, I, if someone who knows everything, I 
pretty much for sure that this is this person is pretty insecure. So the fact that you shared, like, hey, I don't know what that means, shows real confidence. Bravado means like a like an empty like puff up when there's no substance. In my mind, mm. right? Versus in my mind, confident person, someone like you, you can easily say, hey, I don't know this. It's okay, right? It's because you're secure with who you are. So one is coming from a place of insecurity, the other is from a place of authentic security. So for, for you, I'm curious to know, because you didn't have anything, right? And then yet you were able to be confident. So I was curious to know, was it bravado? Was it more like authentic confidence? It was it was authentic confidence. And, and so I'll dive a, a bit deeper into that. I realized... Um, when I got separated from my mom and she didn't know where I was and I was supposed to be with my dad and he was in England and no one knew where he was. And I got left with my dad's prostitute. Um, at, at times you felt like, you know, what, what the hell's going on? And, and you felt like no one loved you, but I always remember saying to myself, and this, this is powerful. I feel it, everyone can benefit from this. My, my opinion even if no one else loves you in the world, you should always have one person that loves you and it's you. And that became uh, the confidence. So like, okay, I, I love me some me. And so that's, um, I, I, I often remember I love myself. You know, mm. you, you, if, if no one else loves me, I, I love my, myself and mm. that confidence, that love of myself, um, I actually even believe it's what kept me from doing drugs. It kept me from being an alcoholic. Uh, that coupled with the fact that I grew up in, in just seeing extreme addiction and realizing, okay, don't want anything to do with that. Like I, I saw just deep heroin addicts and you, you're, you, oh, I want nothing to do with that. So love of self, confidence. And, and again, both of those, in my opinion, are choices. That's that's not something that's, uh, you don't have to learn that. You just have to wake up and say, I love myself and I'm a confident person today. You don't mm -hmm. have to learn that. That's that's not something that that someone has to teach you. Okay, here's how you take the, the hammer and nail the nail into the piece of wood. You have to be taught how to do that. All you have to do is wake up and tell yourself is, I love myself, even if no one else does. I love myself. And I am confident today. Yeah. Our mind is a really powerful tool, but it's a terrible, uh, it's a great servant by a terrible master, as, as the saying goes. What you just share is something that's very simple to execute, to do. But for those that have a, a mind that's been a tyrant all their life, it's not as simple because that inner resistance is there. So, so, uh, what JT just shared is a simple step or one could do as a way to just self program oneself. Like I love myself and so on. So is there anything else that you wanted to say about a way to cultivate this inner self love, inner self, uh, compassion? So there are two programs. I, I call them programs that I've used for, for myself. And, and if you allow me, I go, I'll go through both, both of those formulas. The, the first one you heard me say, I don't hope, wish, or luck. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll walk you through where that mindset came from. Um, when I was a kid and I would hope my dad was going to come pick me up, 
He never showed. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, it never produced anything. So I stopped hoping and I, I switched out hope for belief. Belief forces execution. If you believe that you can get out of the hood, then you've got to execute to get out of the hood. If you believe that you can have the career you want, then you've got to execute to, to have that. You can't just sit there and, and believe without execution. Oh, I believe I'm going to have the big house one day. Okay. Well, if you believe it, what are you doing to execute to get it? So I eliminated hope. And CK, you appreciate this. So I've got a friend of mine. He's a pastor. And he tells me one day, he goes, man, Javon, I, I said uh, hope in my sermon 16 times just last Sunday. He goes, I can't eliminate hope from, from my sermon. I said, okay, follow me here. I said, do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? And, and, and he's a pastor, CK. He looks at me and he goes, damn. <laughs> he goes, yeah. I, never, I never thought of it that way. I said, see, if I just hope there's a God, I don't have to actually commit to living a godly lifestyle. I'm just kind of hoping this God thing's real. But if you believe, then you have to execute that godly lifestyle that you believe in. And, yeah. then, and then wish, oh man, that's just a, a, a horrible word, Um you can wish that you have the big house, wish you have the career, but it's not going to do anything. You can wish upon a star all damn day, and it's not going to produce anything. E even in our house, um, I've got four kids, uh, ages seven, five, three, and two. So we have a lot of birthday parties. When we put the cake on the table, we don't say make a wish. We say make a goal. And so there's no wishing in, in our house. So the, the word wish is that, that ranks right up there with the F word. Um, I, I rather my kids say the F word to me than say wish. Uh, yeah. and, th and then luck, there was just nothing lucky about, uh, about my, my life growing up. So if you look back at that, I, there's no luck. I don't believe in luck. There's, there's execution. There's belief. If you believe, if you execute, then that's, that's where, so that's, that's one of my, my formulas. The second one, um, mindset choices and hard work equals success. Mindset. We we all hear that alarm clock go off at four in the morning. We don't want to get up. And, and I've had people say this to me. Oh, my God, JT, how do you how do you get up at 4 a.m.? You know, I'm not a morning person. Well, you're right. You just told yourself you're not. So if you tell yourself. Sorry, be, be, before you go to the second formula, I'm actually quite curious because you have friends yeah. who are pastors and, you know, and I'm curious to know if you have any, you know, spiritual belief that, you know, that you draw your, you know, inner peace from. Anything like that, or, or so? Yeah, less. I, I, it's more about just you know, I'm I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. No, I, I've got five pillars in life that I live by: God, health, family, business, and investing. If it doesn't fall within those five pillars, I I don't do it. So you notice number one was was God. Uh, no one introduced me to God when I was a kid. I didn't actually learn about God till I was about. 13 years old when I lived with my uncle. Um, but I look back now and, and I see what I've made it through. I see where, what I've achieved, where, what I've become. And for people who say, well, you know, I, I don't believe in God. For me, again, I don't push my views on anybody. For me, I'm kind of like, hey, to get through what I got through, there's got to be a God out there. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm a big person of, of faith and I, I believe in God. Yeah. Beautiful. And then, um, let's see, how do you, I guess, commune or, 
you know, have that cultivate that relationship to your own inner spirituality? Do you have a daily practice? Every every like morning, every morning, first thing I do, I get up at four a.m. First thing I do, uh, say my prayers. First thing, and and my prayers can generally consist of gratitude. You know, uh, thank you for waking me up. Thank you for the gifts, blessings, talents, and abilities you've given me. Thank you for my family, our home, my career. Uh, thank you for bringing me to 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 where I am now. And it, it's it's uh, a prayer of gratitude and thank you more than than asking. And and here, this is very important to me, CK. I, I, I you you know this. You've seen people do this. When something goes bad, everyone wants to pray to God. When mm, we yep. have a lo- loved one in the hospital, everybody yeah. wants to pray to God. We go to prison, everybody finds God. I'm the opposite. I tend to pray even more when things are going great in my life as a show of respect and gratitude for, wow, look at what where you've put me versus it, it, because my belief is when those hard times come and they do for all of us, God's going to be there because I didn't just pray when I needed something. I didn't just show up when right, it's not uh, a transactional relationship. Right, right. Now, now I need you, and so hey, right. hey uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like where are you? Right. It's like going to the bank for a loan. Hey, I need some money. You know, that's but, right. That's um, right. It, it's it, and it's funny. I've looked at it like that. Banks will lend you money when you don't need it. When you need it, they won't lend you money, and it's kind of the same thing with God. No one, rarely do people pray harder when things are going great. Everybody finds God when things are going wrong. Everybody. And so I, I, I truly commit to praying even more and giving more gratitude when things are going great for me. And, and given my lifestyle, man, there's little things that I give gratitude. When I flip on the switch at home and the light comes on, I even tell my kids, hey, you see that light came on. <laughs> That's right. It's magic. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't have that a few hundred years ago. Yeah. Be grateful. So, yeah. You know, there's food in the pantry, in the refrigerator. I, I didn't have those things when in growing up. So, yeah, I, I pray more, harder, uh, give more gratitude when things are going great for me. I, I I appreciate you saying this because you know in my research you didn't mention this part at all so that's why there was a missing puzzle for me like how did JT find so much grace and and love and compassion not only for his past himself but also share with others I was like and then because you just preach hard work and determination and and like yes and like where is the source of that. So, yeah. so I so appreciate you mentioning that. Thank well, you. and, and CK, to, to go on that further too, here, here's the other piece to this. Um, sometimes we pray to God and we ask for things. And when it doesn't show up in the form of which we ask for it, we're like, oh, there is no God. God doesn't listen to me. But we never take the time to sit back and say, oh, I'm healthy. I'm mentally stable. I've got my arms and my legs. Maybe God already gave me the blessing to go out and give me the ability to go out and execute and do it for for myself. Maybe that is the blessing, not um, it it didn't show up exactly the way I want it. And I want it double stitched and I want so it didn't show up the way we want it. And we're like, oh, there's no God. And I'm like, "Mm, I'm healthy. I woke up this morning and I'm mentally capable. That's the blessing. Let me go out and execute. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot we can geek out from 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 there. We can get into the metaphysical in a, in a moment. Uh, so I, I'm curious because you had also publicly said for 45 years you lived an inauthentic life. Yeah. And it wasn't until the last few you started living an authentic life. And it's very obvious, you know, based on the, all of the talks that you made, you're owning your past. You're owning your, you know, the your new name, right? Yeah. Well, your old name and your new name <laughs> and, and on, on all of it. So I was curious to know, well, one thing I did forget to ask, did you take any any kind of therapy or anything as a way to really the the traumatic past that you experience you know the, especially the sexual abuse the molestation part of it no anything at all actually i would say so so i tried back in my 30s to go and, and this may be arrogant of me i'll, I'll own it um or close-minded I'll, I'll say i don't i don't believe it was arrogant I tried to go to a therapist and I remember going in and I asked, it was a lady. And I remember I asked her, I said, Hey, do, do you by chance come from a two parent home? And she said, yes. I said, okay. And, uh, she went to, to university of Texas to, to get her, her PhD. And I said, uh, did your parents pay for your college? And she said, yes. And I said, I said, how, how was your, your upbringing as a child? She goes, oh, I have fabulous parents and blah, blah, blah. And then she, wow. cut, and then, and then she cut me off and, and she said, uh, well, well, you know, we're not here for, for me. We're here to talk about you. But, but what it did for me, I'm like, okay, what are you going to do for me? You don't know anything about the fractured, chaotic background that I come from. And that was the last time I went. I just felt like you don't relate to me. You know, what what steps could you possibly give me to be able to move forward? Now, again, that could have been very close minded and arrogant, but I tried and it, granted it was one time and then I walked out. What actually worked for me, what was the biggest, most therapeutic thing I'd ever did was when I did that book for my kids. Mm. When when we did that book and and I remember I, I never wanted my book to be public never i wanted i wanted five copies as a legacy piece for my kids i wanted it to be passed down as a legacy piece for my great great grandchildren but i never wanted that book to be public and through a lot of conversations a lot of encouragement a lot of support people are like man you got to make that book public there's a lot in there that can uh, help other people and the help other people is what got me i thought okay if, it, if people truly believe that this, this is going to help other people, I'll make it public. Man, I was so nervous when that book went, went public because there were just deep stories in there that I never wanted anyone to know. I didn't want people to know that my father was a pimp and drug dealer and fathered 23 children. I didn't want people who, you know, for, for all those years, everyone who just assumed I was Puerto Rican, mm, guess what? I'm, I'm half white, half black. <laughs> So for all those people who thought I had a degree, uh, guess what? No, I don't. Um, and so I was whatever I had to be to get to wherever I wanted to go in life. And here this book was now going to tell that, you know, this, this is who he is. You know, I was a monster in relationships, CK. I mean, a beast. Couldn't hold a relationship. Didn't know how to treat a woman. Horrible in, in relationships. Um, here I am with my wife now. We've been together nine years. 
it took me 40 years to finally have a healthy relationship. I just did not know how. I didn't blame anybody, just didn't know how to do it. And but you yeah, didn't have the skills. I didn't have the skills, man. Didn't have the tool set, didn't know how. I, I always wanted to be a good person. I just didn't know what that consisted of. Um, and, and what was funny is what I found for me, making money was easier than a relationship because money has no emotion. You know, all mm -hmm. I got to do is keep making it. Let me just keep making it. But a relationship, and I got to deal with somebody else's emotions and I can't even deal with my own. And so, uh, yeah, I was, I was a monster in relationships. I, I wasn't fully authentic. Um, but man, I, I, I always, always, no, ma no matter what, I always wanted to get better. I always wanted to learn. I always wanted to in improve no matter what age I was that I can remember always wanting to, to be better. Even in school, when I, struggle to read when I struggled at math uh, to this day, CK, I don't hold a pen or a pencil the, the right way. Um, I read excruciatingly slow, but I always wanted to improve. Yeah. Oh, I mean that, that curiosity and desire and determination is, is the fire is strong in you. It's, it's, it's my friend, it's, it's very easy to see. So I'm curious to know, in terms of overcoming the PTSD or the trauma, is there anything else that you did that really helped you step into that other than the book? So, or, or was the book, the singular catharsis that have you, you know, starting to really own the past, own, you know, who you were and then own all the, you know, the thing that even you did to others as well. So, so CK, I, I got uh, two stories. They'll make sense. Work, work with me here when I, I share these. So for me, everything has always been, I'll learn, uh, I'll make it happen. I'll figure it out. So just follow me on this. So back when I was 23 years old, I had got promoted to be the vice president of the Northwest region for a payday loan company, 23 years old. It literally had no business being a vice president of anything at 23. But uh, the gentleman sent me up there because I worked hard. I worked my ass off and I earned that, that uh, promotion. So I get up there. I'm in Portland, Oregon. And I had never been, you know, that, that was, I was like, oh man, I, here I am in Portland, Oregon. I've never been there. And, and, but I, it was beautiful. 30 days after being there, the owner of the company calls me up. And he says, hey, I want you to go down to Eugene, Oregon and open up a new office. And I immediately, yes, sir. And, and I, I, he said, you need anything for me? No, sir. He said, okay, make it happen. So I hung up the phone. I sat back in my chair and CK, I said to myself, where in the hell is Eugene, Oregon? <laughs> I love that. You just say yes and figure it out. I was going to figure, and so, so then I just went through my, my steps. I said, okay. Step number one, figure out where Eugene, Oregon is. All right. <laughs> Step number two. And this, this is like 93, 94. So this would, this, there was no map quest and all, you know, anything else to be, there was no Google maps. And so then it was like, step number two, okay, drive to Eugene. I get to Eugene. I pull over in a parking lot. I'm like, okay, step number three, I guess I got to find a location. I didn't even know what a commercial realtor was. So I walked, I drove around, walked around. I looked and I saw signs that said for lease. I said, okay, called numbers, finally got someone to help me. But that was the checklist. And then, and then the light went off and I go, wait a minute. 
I've got three of these offices in Portland. They all look the same. All I have to do is replicate that here. And so that, but that's how I learned. Now, to your point was, was there anything else that I went through uh, that was therapeutic in, in opening up? So I share that story with you. This story will make sense. So book comes out January, 2017. And May of 2017, my two co-founders, Tucker and Zach say, hey, you're going to go to San Diego and speak. I said, okay, speak to who? And they said, you're going to speak on stage. I said, the hell I am. I go, about what? And they said, you're going to tell your story. Oh, no. And, and they said, no, no, no. You're going to go out. It's a national EO event. You're going to go speak. And so I said, okay, I'm in. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. But there was a switch in your head from I'm not a speaker to I'm a speaker. How did that happen? So or here's was what... it as easy as... I guess I'm doing this now. It was, I, guess, I guess I'm doing this now. And then I sat and I was like, okay, what do I do? And I, I and they didn't help me. They didn't, they didn't instruct me. So I said, okay, first, how do people speak on stage? So I literally Googled uh, Joel Osteen, the pastor, T.D. Jakes, the pastor, Kevin Hart, the comedian, and Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian. And I watched their stage presence. I watched to see what they did, how they did it, how they performed. And my takeaways were, okay, don't put your hands in your pocket. <laughs> don't look down. And don't say, um. And those were my three takeaways. Oh I said, okay, gosh. I got that part. So then I went and I, I wrote my speech out, just kind of wrote my story down and said, okay, this is, and so I rehearsed it, rehearsed it, rehearsed it, stood in the mirror, kept rehearsing it. So I get out to San Diego and I remember staying in the hotel room, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. So then, you know, the moment comes, I get on stage and I, I you know, deliver my speech, 30 minutes. Man, I remember afterwards, I damn near ran off stage. I go behind the curtain. The gentleman back there, he says, hey, look up. They had a screen back there. And I was getting a standing ovation. And I was like, oh, wow. And then this lady comes running up to me and she says, hey, uh, who's your speaker coach? And just like you saw me do when you said bravado, I was like, what's a speaker coach? <laughs> and she goes, who, who trained you on your stage presence, your delivery? And I go, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Kevin Hart, and Jerry Seinfeld. And so what was interesting about that is when I told that story on stage, and that really opened up to where, okay, man, I, I just own the hell out of who I am, where I come from, what I endured, and this is the damnedest thing. I just, some people just stood up on and clapped for me because I shared my story. Now, now here's the other part of the CK. And, and this is very important. Shortly after that, that, that day, someone came up to me and asked me what my speaking fee was. Again, I didn't even know people got paid to, to, to do that. I, you know, I knew Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld and Kevin Hart did. They were comedians. You know, you're paying to make them. I didn't know people got paid to tell a story on, on stage. And so I was offended when someone asked me what my fee was. Offended it, why? I don't understand. It, because when I was a kid and I needed money and my mom needed money, no one would give us any money. Here I was now 
all the money I could ever ask for, money on top of money. I didn't need any money. And now you want to pay me to tell you about when I was poor and I needed money. Mm. And that really, that the irony of that really got to me. I'm like, how dare you? You know, not to this individual, but mm-hmm. in my mind, it was like, how it's dare the idea you? Of it, yeah. yeah, no one gave me shit when, when I needed it, when I needed money and I was hungry. Now, now I don't need the money and, and I've worked myself out of that situation and you want to pay me to hear about when I struggled? And that that was a real eye-opener for me. Mm. On this podcast, well, number one, thank you for sharing that that story. I mean, you are a natural uh, storyteller. You, uh, you it, it's, it's interesting. How you approach life is the complete opposite of how I approach life. Meaning, um, I I need to kind of you know survey the landscape, studying the books, and see the best practices, lay out the uh, the mental models, and you basically have very little uh, inner resistance. You just say, "Fuck it, let's let's figure it out," which yeah. is a very <laughs> opposite approach. I'm a, hey, I love I'm, a, it. I'm a burn the ships guy. I'm like, okay, hey, yeah, that's true. We, let's go. <laughs> How are we going to do this? Uh, yeah, it, it's now to be fair in, in, in scaling the company, I don't treat it the same way. I, I live by this premise when it comes to business. Uh, know your numbers, know your company. You don't know your numbers, you don't know your company. And so I, I live by knowing your numbers. So, so I actually, so, so um, before we go into the company part, I wanted to, to rewind to, for you to reflect on your hero's journey. You, you probably know the hero's journey arc, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, cool. So reflect upon that. One of the things we say on this podcast is your biggest wound is the source of your superpower. What would you say is your dharmic path? Like the trajectory of your, like, what are you here to do? Oh, That's a big question. I, so if you need to take some time. No, I, I, I actually, this this one has... His, um... I believe I was truly born to do business. You know, I told you about when I first learned how to thought about scaling a company. And then I remember when I was 12 years old, again, I'm going to date myself on this. Back in the day, you could get a magazine and you could take out the insert and like order the magazine and you could check bill me later. And then you, you, you'd send it in. You didn't even have to put a stamp on it. Like it just, you know, postage was paid. So you send it in and then they would send you two or three issues before they cut you off when they realized you weren't going to pay the bill. So I would do that with business magazines and I would pretend that I was a president of a company. I don't know what company, I don't know what type of business I was in, but I was a president of a company. I didn't even know a a CEO existed, didn't even know what that was. And so I, I, as far back as I can remember, I always had this thing for, for business and, um, CK, you'll love, love this. When I was, uh, I was working at the insurance company. It was my, uh, second job. I was the, the mailboy. And I pushed a cart and I was a filer. And so one day I'm walking by this conference room and it said uh, free lunch 401k. All I saw was free lunch. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going I'm to go free lunch. I'm there. You know, I didn't care what the topic was free lunch. So I'm pushing my cart and I, I remember saying to myself, okay, 
I'm going to go to that free lunch later on. So I'm pushing the cart and then uh, someone was walking by me and I said, hey, where's conference room 401k? <laughs> I didn't know that free lunch and learn 401k meant there's a free lunch and learn to cover 401k. I thought 401k was a conference room. And so I went to that, that uh, lunch and learn and heard two of the greatest words I had ever heard in life, compound interest. When I discovered that you can take a hundred dollars and turn it into a thousand and a thousand into 10, I, man, that's the yeah, mind blown. Oh, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I'm like, this is better than drug dealing. Like, and, and, and I literally I'm sitting there like, this is legal. Like, you can literally do this. And, and so fell in love and wanted to find out everything I possibly could about uh, stock investing. And so I feel like with business and investing, those, those were my calling. I do what I love to do in this world. But more importantly, above both of those, given my background, given what I've achieved, what I've been able to accomplish, I do believe in my heart part of why God has given me this is to show others what's possible. Like I will, I refuse to allow anyone to refer to me as a motivational speaker. I'm a what's possible speaker. I'm not mm. here. To, I'm not here to motivate you, but I am here to show you what's possible that through everything I've went through the, the sexual molestation, the, the juvenile, the being separated from my mother, the being left with my, my half brothers and sisters for three weeks and, and no one came for us through the hell that I've walked through. I, I'm what is possible, you know, from my lack of, of formal education, I still found what's possible in, in life. So I, I believe I have a, a great responsibility, not an obligation, a responsibility to show and teach others what's possible. I mean, you're certainly doing that. What I mean, every interaction that I've witnessed you personally. So I'm curious to know, though, so that was clear to you that 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 path, that North Star is clear to you. How long ago? Well, as far as, far as business? Yeah, and in terms of business, also showing others what's possible. Oh, uh, showing what others what's possible. The, the showing what others is what's possible. That probably came to me, yeah, man, seven years ago when I was at the software company and I became the president of a software company. It, it really hit me that oh wow, I'm in a position to be able to go back and and teach kids that have gone through some of the hell that I went through and say, hey, guess what? We can be more than a rapper, athlete, or drug dealer. No one told us about this business thing. No one told us about entrepreneurship, that you can be an executive. So it hit me back when I became the president of a software company. And that's when I started going and, and mentoring high-risk youth at the uh, juvenile halfway house and at the, the juvenile prison. Yeah. So so that North Star became clear to you seven years ago. Yeah. What is, I know that what you wanted to come on the show and share some of the mistakes that you made, right? So... So now that North Star is clear, what are some of the the detours and mistakes that you have made as as you navigate this path of showing others what's possible for yourself, for your family, for people that look up to you, for you know, people that's not you. You know, the the biggest one we touched on it a bit er, earlier. You you heard me say 
I, I do my best. I don't have a lot of regrets in life. I, I have remorse for how I treated women when I was in those relationships. That's that's probably the thing I'm most remorseful for. Uh, but even even then, I'm remorseful for what they had to endure from me. But it was still a learning lesson for me, and. Uh, so that was one of my biggest mistakes is just how I conducted myself in relationships. I, I just, and, and so much of it was, it was fear. It was anger. It was frustration because I never, until my wife, no one actually knew who I truly was. So I, I was constantly on this, this seesaw and balance beam of, you know, it's like, I, I want to trust you, but I don't fully trust you. And, and nobody's ever really stayed in, in my life. And, and it was always this push and pull in, internally with my own mind. And, and then, and then now you throw somebody else's emotions in here and they got needs and wants and I'm like, ah, you know, and so it, it's, uh, I, I'm very remorseful for how I conducted myself, myself in the, in those relationships. That was a, a massive mistake. Um, the other big one mistake. Go ahead. Do you mind going into that a bit? Because um, conceptually, I get, and you don't need to share the specific details, but rather the lessons that you learn, right? So maybe you can concretize how you would have said certain things differently. How would have oh, maybe yeah. the certain skills that you have learned, pick up along the way? Because I, on this podcast, we talk a lot about relationship as one of the the deepest. A uh, spiritual path one could take on because it's not easy to be a human being. Now you, yeah. as you said, involve another human being. You know the egos clash and all these other things. So, uh, if you could share some of the lessons in in a little bit more concretely, that would be amazing. N number one lesson takeaway for me was if if I'm being very direct and, and having to own this was. Almost every serious relationship that I got involved in collapsed and went awry because of me. In the moment, mm -mm. it was everybody else's fault. Nope. Her, 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 you, 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 you said this, you did that. And if, I, if I'm looking back at it, it was me. I didn't know how to hold a relationship. I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how, I didn't know give and take. I didn't understand how to in, incorporate someone else's feelings, uh, show respect. Um, you know, it, it that those were the biggest takeaways for me. The number one was realizing, okay, you need to look in the mirror because um, you're the problem. You, you, you keep blaming everyone else, but you're actually the problem. And that, that was the biggest takeaway. Even now, uh, love love my my wife love coming home to the same person every night love coming home to hearing my my kids uh coming to the same house um just what what most people would call mundane i call glorious i love the structure the routine the discipline the consistency all the things i didn't have as a kid and but but i also know how to incorporate her feelings I know how to love my wife. Um, you know, if, if we're going to go down into the basement, CK, I'll give you this one. Um, and no one knew this until, until my wife about two years ago. 
We're on the couch. We're watching TV. It's Christmas time. And my wife, I don't know, she's probably on Facebook or something. She looks over at me and she says, hey, I got a question for you. And CK, tell me if I'm out of line when I, when I go. She goes, how come uh, you never allow me to initiate sex? And normally I got an answer for everything. You know, I'm, I'll think about it. And then I'm I got a CEO okay. guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got the answers. Yeah. Right. Here's how we're going to address this. And then so I was stunned. I was like, hmm, interesting. I don't know. And I told her, I said, let me think about that one. I'll get back with you. About two weeks later, I, I come in and she's in the kitchen. I say, hey, I got it. I figured it out. She's like, figured out what? I go, why I never allowed anyone to initiate, why I never allowed you to initiate sex. I said, when I think about it, I never allowed anyone to initiate sex. And I said, and I realized why. That prostitute used to be the person who always initiated sex. And this was just two years ago. I never realized that I had never allowed any woman to initiate sex with, with me. And it wasn't until my wife actually asked that I had to think about it and remember that prostitute always initiated it. And yeah, it, it's so, so in, in those relationships, people didn't know those things and those things caused tension and those things called for, for at times for me, they caused panic. You know, I didn't want people to, to, to know that or, or know that about, you know, who, who's going to want to date or get into the relationship with the guy who's been molested and dad was a pimp. And um, yeah, it was rough. It, it was like, like I said, could beast monster in relationship. It, but I never wanted you to know why I was. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I so appreciate the, the trust that you put in, in, in me and, and the listeners. Um. I know Tucker Max is pretty pretty uh, public about his um, his practice with psychedelics, ayahuasca, and things like that as part of his path to be a better human being. And on this podcast, we do talk pretty openly about this type of thing as well. For me personally, I needed to. I'm mean, I'm a super cerebral person. In case you haven't noticed, so I had to learn all of my social skills. Um, you know, through acquisition rather than you know naturally blessed with it. So, uh, plant medicine has been actually tremendous, instrumental for me to actually see what's it like to be in relationship with me. Yeah. So I was curious to know if you have had any experience with that, and and that that have, may have shown or giving you some insights about uh, as a way to you know, transform, as you call yourself, you know, that monster in relationships to. A loving, you know, a nurturing, compassionate human being that you are today. The biggest thing for me, man, on that, and, and let me back up to two things there. One, you said uh, you had to learn your your communication skills or whatever, man. We all did, you know. Now I learned mine from some interesting places. My dad, man, everyone loved my dad. He was he was a pimp and drug dealer. He was a, he was a beast to women sometimes, but man. Everyone loved him. He couldn't drive 10 minutes without someone waving him down. Hey, what's going on? And everyone loved him. And I would watch and I would study. He made everyone feel welcome. Even the prostitutes that he would be horrible with, for whatever mind-blown reason, they loved him. And, and uh, But I watched his communication skills. I watched how he addressed people, how he listened to people, how he made people feel. 
And that left an impression on me. So yeah, we, we all had to learn our skills, man. I just haven't learned mine from a pimp. Um, so, but to, to the other point, man, you know, what's helped me most of all is actually having going into a relationship where it was all on the table. Hey, here's who I am. Here's what I come from. Here's uh, how fractured my background is. And if, if you can accept that, then let's get into a relationship. And, and let me back up a bit on this. Uh, this, this isn't something I, I've shared a lot. Maybe, I don't know, a year before I met my wife, I was dating a lady here in Austin. Uh, and if I said the name, you, you probably would know, know who she is. And, uh, she she was a, a white lady or still is white lady, and 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 so <laughs> we uh, um, we were we were dating for like nine months, mm. and I don't know how the topic of race had never come up, but one day it did, and I say, oh yeah, you know I'm half white, half black, you know what whatever, and nothing really came of it. So two days later, we get on the phone and she says. Hey, I, you know, I got something to share with you. And I was like, okay. And she goes, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm in love with you. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, cool. Whatever. Okay. She goes, that was your uh, response. Okay. Yeah, cool. Well, it was cause she went, she went real, <laughs> really quick with, with it. She goes, I'm in love with you, but, uh -huh. and, okay. and so it didn't really give me a chance to respond to anything. She goes, I'm in love with you, but, and she goes, but, uh, we, we can't see each other anymore. And I was mm. like, what? And she goes, yeah, uh, my family would never accept you because I was mm. half white, half black. And mm. man, I've dealt with that my my whole life. And so mm. it, it, I wasn't offended. I wasn't angry. I was at peace. You know, it, mm. it wasn't the first time I, I had heard it. I had made peace with, with that at eight years old. I learned at eight years old, everyone is not going to like you. Um, you, you. You may have heard me talk about this before, CK. When, when that lady in the welfare line, Me, my mom and I were standing in the welfare line and we were waiting for our monthly allotment of food stamps, our, our you know, our handout. And that older white lady looked down at, at me. She looked up at my mom and she spit in my mom's face and she called her a nigger lover. And I remember looking at my mom's face and, and just watching her wipe the spit from her face, the tears coming down her eyes, the humiliation she had. No one came to her assistance. No one asked if she was okay. And the, the hardest thing, CK, is she couldn't leave the line. She had to stand there, humiliated, because she had to feed her, her mixed-race son. And I remember saying in that moment, huh, everyone's not going to like me. And I'm not going to spend my whole life trying to make everyone like me. And so when, when go back, back to the story... When she said that, you know, my, my family would never accept you, I was at peace with it because I had made peace with that back at eight years old when I realized everybody wasn't going to like me. So um, mm. what, what was interesting, though, is I went into the relationship with my, my wife kind of with a chip on my shoulder. Uh, even, even on our first date, man, she goes, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just looking to make some more friends. And I literally I pulled over on the side of the road and I said, hey, I got all the friends I need. So if you're just looking for a, a friend, I can drop you back off. And she was like, are you serious? I was like, oh, yeah. And, and she was like, hmm, well, let's see where this goes. So we, we went out. We ended up well, uh, like on a seven-hour date. And 
you know, through the course of that date, you know, just told her about my background. But not, you know, I didn't give her every detail on the first date, obviously. But uh, <laughs> so, so some very significant pieces, like, hey, I'm half white, half black. You know, is, is that an issue? And and so, uh, what was therapeutic for me? Back to your question, is the fact that my wife was the first person who really knew a lot of the darkness up front of where I come from and accepted it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, speechless because I think relationship is such a key component to life, you know, whether it's your, with your significant other, with yourself first and foremost, of course, and with others. And also, and now you're in the role of being a CEO, you're, you know, in the role of being a, essentially a parent to the rest of the employees. So, um, where do we go from here? Mm. <laughs> you know, one that I do want to actually mention one thing as part of your superpower, Tucker Max very publicly said about, I don't know if you saw the actual video on your own website, he, he, he was acknowledging you how extraordinary, not just your EQ, but also your social intelligence as part of your superpower. So. Could you draw the correlate between how you grow up, right? All the the worst of humanity has has faced to your development of the superpower that you have around EQ as as well as social intelligence. Hundred percent, hundred percent. When when you on any given day are worried, okay, am I going to get beat up today for being mixed race? Um, okay, is this prostitute going to molest me if my dad leaves? How can I maneuver and get my dad to get to to take me with me, take me with him, and not leave me here with with her? Uh, when when you're just any given day trying to figure out the angle of okay, how am I going to eat today? The the social, um, you know, it's funny when when he first brought up EQ to me and and uh, social intelligence, I didn't even know what those things meant. Like, okay, what's what's that? And he, go, he laughed. He goes, damn, you're so good at it. You don't even know what it means. It's just something you do. And, and it came from, you know, how do I learn these, these lessons? Uh, here's to, to your point of, of social, uh, go back to the insurance company. I, I used to push my cart and there was a black guy there. He was like the head of HR and no matter who asked this question, he would, they would say, hey, how are you doing today? He would always say tremendous every time. Didn't matter who asked him, didn't matter the time of day. He was always tremendous. And I remember in that moment, I said, okay, if he's always tremendous, what's my word? And my word's excellent. I say, I, it, any given time, any given day, everyone in the company knows, hey, Javon, how you doing? I'm excellent. I, and and what I picked up on is you never knew if he was having a bad day or if he was having a great day because he was always tremendous. So you just knew that this interaction with him, he was going to be tremendous. And so for me, I, I picked up on that. I said, you know what? I'm always excellent. Where it has served me is it's a very positive way of thinking, you know, because some people say, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's Monday. Um, it's well documented with me. You can get fired for saying, thank God it's Friday around me. <laughs> thank God it's Monday. Thank God you woke up on Tuesday because somebody didn't. 
thank God we, we have this incredible company we get to work with. And so if, if you have the type of career or you feel about your job or your role that you've got to trade two for five, you're in the wrong place. So if you feel, if you ever feel like you got to drop a, thank God it's Friday, uh, you, you need to go find what's going to make you happy because this obviously isn't it. Or, you know, uh, it's Monday. Oh, same old shit. I don't, I don't want those people around me. That That's very negative, pessimistic. Yeah, so, so, so I actually have a follow-up question, and I'm very curious about this because what you just said, you have a very low tolerance of entitlement. This, this, this like, oh, my God, I'm surviving my day, right? And at the same time, you also have tremendous love and compassion for human beings. So I'm curious in how, how you actually ride the two because uh, I, I get both. Um, let's see if I can ask my question in a better way. Right. So coming from where you came from, um, do you just not have any kind of tolerance for any kind of complaint from your wife, from your kids, from your employees of anything at all? I, I have had to grow and learn into that because I, I did have a very low tolerance. Uh, I'll share a funny story with you at my, my house even. So, you know, maybe it's a Saturday and the kids eat, eat lunch at about 11. And let's say, I don't know, we, we go somewhere, we're running errands throughout the day and four o'clock comes around and the kids are like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And then my, my wife was like, oh my God, the kids are starving. The kids are, and I'm like, the hell they are. They ate at 11 o'clock. I'm like, nobody's <laughs> starving. I go, do you know what it's like to, to eat at Friday at noon and you don't eat again until, and then I go into this big rant and I had to catch myself. Okay. But that's not their life. That's not right. their lifestyle. Right. It's you not know? a relative. Right. right. They're For like, them, hey, they're, they're starving. Yeah. Right. They're like, wait a minute. We usually have a snack somewhere between this and this. And, and so, but yes, I'm very, um, more so for adults. We all as humans, especially adults, we get caught up in our own bubbles. We get caught up in our own surroundings. Um, but when I hear people complain about their, and it really doesn't happen here at, at, at Scribe too much, but any, anyone complain about their role, complain about what they're, they're doing in life or whatever, it just goes back to the mindset thing. Man, right now, right now, CK, there's a single mom with two kids literally doing this right now, walking 1,100 miles from Honduras to try to cross the border into this country. Man, on my worst day of being sexually molested, of being left alone with that prostitute, of being left with my half-brothers and sisters, on my worst day, I've never had to face that. I was born here. I was born. I, so, I, so I'm ahead of the game. I was born in this country. I, I just... I keep everything in perspective, man. I, I, you know, I know if I walk outside of my office door right now, I'm looking over there. If I walk outside, I know within a one mile radius, shit, somebody will trade places with me in a heartbeat. Yeah. Hard, hard to find uh, complaints that will come out of my mouth, man. I just, I look at life as there's a challenge. Let's overcome the challenge. I don't see shit as problems. I don't see things as, um, I just do my best to look at things in, in a positive light and, and realize, wow, there's somebody trying to get into this country right now. There's somebody in a hospital bed right now that may not leave that hospital bed. 
man, I, I'm blessed. My kids are healthy. My wife's healthy. The company's doing great. And God, I've, I've made so much money. Um, my, I, I've got a phenomenal life. You do. So if I'm hearing you right, there's the micro and then there's the macro. Whenever you feel any kind of, let's say, negative emotions, you may want to have the impulse to complain. You zoom out to the to the macro to compare now, you know, this immigrant from Honduras trying to cross the border thousands of miles versus where you are. And there's a way to snap snap you back to gratitude. Is that what I'm hearing? Totally. And, and, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful. I, you said I, I find myself in a, a place where I may want to complain. I don't ever find myself there. <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't do it. it it's, I, I guess because I've done it for so long, it's just natural to me that I'm not going to look at something from a negative position because negativity has never solved anything. Mm. You can only solve by what's the, how can we get through that? It, mm. That mindset alone is a positive because you're trying to get through it. That's not an, oh, this is happening. This happened to me, you know, uh, well, you know, because because uh, my, my parents got divorced when I was two. My God, you're 28 years old and you're telling me about your parents getting divorced when you were two? I mean, yeah. that, no, I, I, I refuse. And, and it's, it's not a comparison. I never, when people say, uh, you know, I, I had a hard life, but nothing like yours, nothing like yours. I go, no, 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 it's not a comparison. You had your journey. You have yeah. your journey. I have mine. We we don't compare. Yeah, it's okay. D -d -d great. L let's go there if you don't mind. How do you find then other people's story? Because again, if you look at the absolute, it's pretty obvious who has it worse. But subjectively, maybe for them, relatively, they still it's still really it's the worst for them. How do you, Javon, find empathy and compassion? for someone else's quote unquote hardship. Does that make sense? What I'm it, 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 it does totally. It, I usually, because people will usually approach me this way. Well, you know, I don't have that background that you have to, to rely upon. I, I, you know, I, my life was not that harsh and, and I let people know, and this is what they're shocked by. When I gave you the Honduras example, I rarely dip back into my own past for uh, inspiration I just look around me, the, the mom trying to get into the country, uh, the, the person who has cancer that I've never had cancer. I've never experienced it. I haven't had any family. So I don't know what that's like. But I know that if you're going through chemotherapy and it's draining the hell out of you, I know that I am blessed that right now God's given me health. So I'm going to focus on that. And, and so I rarely use my own uh, background is a place of, of gratitude. I just look around and, and see, you know, the, the homeless community here in, in Austin. You know, I drive and I, I see some of them and I say to myself, man, I was like a half hour from that growing up. That could have been me. And then I, I take my mind to a place of, man, I get to go home to this gated community, uh, beautiful family. Uh, it, matter of fact, let me give you a, a, a human aspect on this for me. Um, last year, not this, this Christmas, but last Christmas, I'm driving home. I left the office early. I'm like, I'm going to get home early. We're going to make some popcorn. We're going to watch Christmas cartoons, blah, 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 with the kids. And it was about 38 degrees. 
which is cold here in Texas, and and it was rainy, and so we're we're I'm driving and traffic stopped. I mean, I'm talking stopped to the point where I had to put the car in park, and I'm furious. I'm like, what the? And and so I text my wife, this is bullshit. I left early. I'm about to lose my shit. And the moment I set down my phone, it hit me. I said, you ungrateful little punk ass. You grew up on bus stops in the winter with three feet of snow. You know what it's like to be hungry. You know what it's like to to have to get dressed in front of the stove, uh, the gas stove, because the electricity is turned off. And you're sitting here mad because you're sitting in this six-figure car with $1,000 shoes on going to a gated community with a beautiful family. Shut the fuck up. And I sat there. I I put on Christmas music and joy to the world. <laughs> so, so 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 that's when the general comes out from inside yes. your head to do a little smackdown. And, and and here's here's the thing. If I had to say what that equates to for me, it's self-accountability. And if you look in in our country right now, man, accountability is just lacking. It, everybody's trying to blame somebody else, give excuses, reasons, it, it's just pointing the finger. Very few people want to take accountability. You know, uh, my wife's got friends they are like, oh, well, you know, if, if I was such and such person and I had a, my own cook and I had a, a nanny and I had a, a, a personal chef, I too could be in shape. It's just always a reason. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's always an excuse. Like you, you don't go to the gym because you don't have all those things. Okay. You know, it's in that, and it's it's rampant through our, through our country. It's always someone else's fault. And and you know we could go back to the beginning of this conversation. Okay, my dad was black, my mom's white. This is what I'm working with. I, I don't know if you play poker. Here's the best way I can say this. Um, if my life was a poker hand, I got dealt a two, a three, a, a six, and an eight. But man, I went all in with my hand. And that's what you have to do in life. Just go all in. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to blame the dealer because oh, you dealt me a shitty hand. Nope. That's what I got. I'm going to play the hell out of this hand and I'm going all in. And I, I just, I refuse to make excuses, reasons, and I damn sure I'm not going to be a victim. Yeah. I mean, that that's really obvious. Do you mind if I ask you some more questions about company culture and so forth? Is yeah, man, better? let's do it. Awesome. Thank you. So if you, so Tucker talked about your superpower like he's, you know, you have this like literal superpower, you know, in terms of like social intelligence. So, so, so for people that want to, they certainly don't have your background, uh, very unique background. How would you say to them as a way to cultivate their social intelligence? To, to really, and in my mind, my interpretation of what that phrase means is the ability to understand what the other person is listening for and speak into their listening. Is that an accurate you know, definition totally. from your point you, of view? You're, you're pretty much doing it within the podcast. You're, you're sitting here, you're asking me questions, you're seeking to understand. Unfortunately, for so many people who are in quote-unquote leadership, 
they have the mentality that they're supposed to have all the answers. They have the mentality because they have three letters after their name, CEO, PhD, MBA, ESQ, whatever the hell else, um, that all of a sudden they're, they're now this, this leader. And, and I'm like, <laughs> I made the joke the other day. I said, look, man, I had three letters after my name long before CEO. And somebody looked at me like, what? I said, GED. I said, so three letters didn't change much. Um, it's, it's listening. It's actually listening. It's, it's surrounding yourself with people far smarter than yourself, being, being willing to admit that. I don't ever want to be the smartest person in the room. You know, here, here's a good one. They, they gave out a, uh, I got some CEO award uh, last uh, December, this past December. And I remember I'm on the phone with the, the, the people and I said, I go, look, I don't understand the whole CEO award thing. I go, I don't actually do the work. I go, yeah, I, I support the the company and, and I move some roadblocks and obstacles, make some decisions, set some direction. But the actual execution comes from the company. I said, so, so here's the thing. If you want to give me an award, give me an award for hiring because I figured out how to hire people who are smarter than me. And, and I, I live by this. You're only as good as the great people you're surrounded by. That's it. And so uh, it's, it's listening, paying attention, truly listening that, that I don't have to know all the answers. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. And that, is, that in itself will help raise your uh, EQ, social, whatever it is. It'll help raise it because let go of the fact that you're the CEO and embrace the fact that your role is not to know all the answers. Tell people that, hey, guys, I don't know, but we're going to sit here, we're going to figure this out together, and we're going to make some decisions. Yeah. Embrace it. So principally, 100% agree with you, and it's all about listening and really listening for not what's being said explicitly, but what's being said implicitly, what's said between the lines. But for those people who are listening and I say, Javon, I agree with you too. I want to be better at social intelligence, at, at, at empathy, at, uh, at EQ. What books, tactical things, what could do to cultivate that? Because right now you are at, let's say, use a professional sports analogy. You know, you are at the NFL level and you tell people just work out then you could be in the nfl <laughs> yes and right right like, what are the steps you know what i mean like fundamentally knowing what you know what are the 80 20 skills you could say do this do this do this to start off here's what i would say number one ask ask questions truly seeking to to learn i i have learned this about people generally when someone ask you a question, when someone asks you a question, the first question isn't what they're actually asking for. Now, now, you know, don't get me wrong. You, you can even see this with kids. If you've got an ice cream comb, you'll, you'll hear the kid, they'll say, oh, I like ice cream. They didn't actually ask for anything. They just said, I like ice cream because they want to see if you're going to offer them some. And it, it doesn't actually change a lot as you get paid as you become an adult. So a lot of times people will come with a question and it's not even the question that they're actually looking to ask. So I always go three levels deep. So someone comes to me and says, hey, how do we uh, X, Y, Z? Immediately, 
I, I, there, I, I'm known for this throughout the, country, uh, the company. I rarely will answer a question first time. So if you come to me with a question and say, hey, hey you know, we got to look into this. You know, what, what are your thoughts on doing this for X, Y, Z? And I'm like, look, I've got my thoughts, but what are yours? Immediately. Give me, give me your thoughts. Then as they're giving me their thoughts, I'm going to ask another question about their thoughts. So we're going to get, have a, a full-blown discussion now on whatever this you, you've come to me. And rarely am I ever going to give a direct answer. I'm just going to keep pulling information from you. That That's the key for me. Someone asked me yesterday, uh, what makes a good negotiator in, in business? I believe it's actually listening and asking questions. It's not so much, you know, everybody's quick to want to tell you the features and benefits of what they're trying to sell. And, and the fact of the matter is, okay, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to ask questions from you. I, I have to learn but we're quick to want to, you know, push our initiative when you have feature and benefits and, and this is why you should buy it. Mm, I want to listen to you first. I want to understand what, what you want. So the, the key, the, the number one thing that I would say to your point, what's something tactical? When someone comes to you with a question, ask what their thoughts are about the question that they're, they're asking. Mm, I appreciate that. That's very tactical. Yeah. Uh, on the note of joining Scribe, how did you know that this was a sole impact fit? And I use that phrase specifically because professional CEO could easily, you could easily join any other organizations and do this. Why did you pick Scribe as the organization? And how did you know that there was a cultural fit for your style as well as, as, well as what you want to contribute? So I didn't necessarily know there was a culture fit. And, and truth be told, I didn't even learn culture until I was at the uh, software company. And, you know, prior to, to joining Scribe, you know, when, when I was in sales, I learned that, okay, in sales, all you have to do is be worried about yourself. Kind of goes back to that emotional thing with other people. It's like, hey, I just, I'll do me. <laughs> and so make money, that was it. So I learned, okay, I want to be the number one salesperson. I learned culture at the software company and, and I'll, I'll, I'll lead you up to scribe and, and how this came to be. When I was at the software company, I was hired as the lowest paid person in the company. I was the sales guy and I sat on a fold out metal chair in a, a storage closet to, to make my calls within I'll fast forward within two years, I became the president of the company and we scaled that company from that storage closet with 13 people uh, to well over a hundred people. And we had offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and Monterey, Mexico. And I don't, to this day, I don't write code. And so where I learned culture was as the sales guy, I should have been fired 71 different times. And the reason being is I was a, I was toxic to the culture. I was so good at selling no one could tell me anything. No one could say anything to me. It was all about, hey, I closed it. You need to deliver. Get it done. But I then got promoted to EVP of sales and marketing. So then not only was I a toxic person, I created a toxic team of sales and marketing. Like, hey, we're going to be the best in this company. I don't care what anybody else is doing, but we, we're going to do this. 
And then I got promoted to president. Mm. And I re- and I remember I walked in one morning. I'll, I'll never forget this. I was the first one in the office. I turned on the lights. And I looked around. And I said, holy shit. I'm responsible for all of this now. And it hit me like, okay, I'm only as good as the great people I'm surrounded by. And I'm like, I got to put people first because if I don't have great people around me, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And it took me back to the book I read in my early 20s, Thinking Grow Rich. And I'm going to paraphrase. It took me to the story of Henry Ford when they had him on trial and they said that he was not fit to run a company that big because uh, his lack of education. And I remember when I first listened to the story, it really touched me. But he 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 was on trial and they were asking him all kinds of just nonsense, quite, you know, Spanish Inquisition and like, who knows? I and and then he finally got fed up. And again, I'm paraphrasing, he stopped and he said, Look, I assure you, for every question that I don't know the answer to, I am surrounded by people that I can go to and get the answer. And it hit me. I'm like, oh, I don't need to know all this. I just got to make sure that we're surrounded by people who know all the answers, who can guide the de- guide the decision making, that we can have a council with and, and, and make decisions that will best serve the company. And that's where I first learned that, you know, or made the decision, okay, you got to put people first. If you don't put people first, none of this matters. So I operate by people, process, and profits. So So, go ahead. So I'm going to lovingly challenge you again, right? Because you said you were, you know, a solo high performer. You ran a solo team of high performance, quote unquote, right? Outcome driven culture, you know, screw, screw everyone else. You know, let's let's just you know go get it. That's that's and that's how you rise to the position of president. And then right now you are saying you rethink it back. You know, you got the you know the president title and you flip the switch to servant people first CEO, right? Yeah. At that moment, that's a huge jump from because what you were work what you were doing was working for you in this smaller scale, like. It couldn't have been that easy as in, all right, I'm going to flip the switch to now people first. So if you can. CK, um, (laughs) I hate to say it, man, but uh, no, I don't hate to say it. It was truly like when I flipped that switch on to turn on the lights in the office that day, the same switch went off in my head that you you can't do this all by yourself. You better better surround yourself. Um, Now, I'm going to be fair. Here's the other part. There was a gentleman I worked with literally to this day, one of the smartest people I have ever met. Man is brilliant. He was a software engineer. He had uh, 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 an engineering degree. You know, he, he had the master's degree. He had all the credentials and he was great at what he did. But I became the president. He sat in a room with me, and this goes back to the, your, your uh, approving people. Um, he sat in a room with me, and he said, hey, I don't agree with the decision to make you president. He said, I think it's, uh, the, it's the wrong decision. He said, I think it's a bad decision. He said, but I will get on board. And I was like, okay. And I remember sitting there, I'm like, oh, you, you dare doubt me? And, and, and I remember thinking that. And I said, okay, so you know I'm going to prove you wrong. 
And he said, okay. He said, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. You prove me wrong and I'll buy you a drink. And I'm like, man, you know, I don't drink. And he said, that's the highest compliment that I can give you is to buy, buy you a beer. I said, okay. So he, myself, and at the time, our chief architect were on a massive sales call in uh, Wichita, Kansas. You can figure out what company is in Wichita, massive sales call. And we closed the deal. And, and I was leading the presentation and everything. We closed this deal. So we're at a restaurant afterwards. And he looks at me and he says, hey, what kind of beer do you like? And I said, you know, this is like two years after I had been promoted. I'm like, you know, I don't drink. He said, I, I always told you I'd buy you a beer if you proved me wrong. I go, prove you wrong at what? He said, remember when I told you I, I felt that that was a wrong decision to make you president? I said, yeah. He said, I owe you a beer. Man, that was one of the greatest feelings ever. Uh, I, I loved that that feeling when in and I didn't drink the beer, but, uh, <laughs> so, but, but the, the, it was the, a symbolic gesture. Yeah, it was a symbolic gesture. And so, um, that in itself, you know, I realized I was still in that prove it mode. And to, to your point, uh, because he was one and is still one of the smartest people I've ever met and, and a good man too. I mean, he, he, man, he took his kids on boy scout trips he i'd hear him talk to his wife he was so nice and and loving and just i, I really and and i regret that i never told him you know if i had to say i had a regret that maybe one he was a good man you know he was hard but he he was a good man and um it, it's i learned i learned a lot from him but i realized oh i got him here oh okay the the lady that does our finance oh she's she's oh she's solid and I realized, okay, you got all the pieces. Now we got to bring it together and have a, a true team and environment. But like I said, man, I should have been fired back when I was the, the sales guy and even the EVP. Um, and then fast forward, describe now. Actually, something just came to me uh, yeah. as you're speaking. I, I guess I, I didn't really connect the dots until I had to hear multiple times that when you are clear about your North Star and you're clear about the goals you want to hit and you're willing to put in the work, the hard work, the hours and all these things to make it work. You don't hold your old identities as, I guess, gospel, so to speak. No. You are very fluid about the approach you take. You can forgive about the past, just stay in the present and just be extremely fluid. Is that an accurate recap uh, of your 100%. approach to life? Hundred percent, and if I, if if we write it down, it's happening. Unstoppable. It, yeah. It's. I, I refer to myself uh, in, internally. I always said to myself, "Okay, I'm like a flood of water. You know, you can take a glass of water and you can drink it. Great, um, but a flood of water, it doesn't matter what's in its way. It's coming through, over, around, under. But a flood of water, it's coming. And I've always yeah. internally, I've always referred to myself as I'm I'm a flood of water. I'm coming. No, no matter yeah. what, I'm coming." You're forced to be reckoned with. Uh, reminds me of that "be like water," my friend Bruce Lee quote. I don't know if you heard that before. Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, so, so in that though, so I have a question. It's perhaps a spiritual question or, or a mental uh, model question. But we are human beings. We all mm -hmm. have egos, right? How do you make sure that the ego 
for that that desires the recognitions the you know the respect the all of that not to flare up and let it run you like how do you master or discipline your ego so that you are serving your organization rather than this desire to be respected and be the star does that make sense it, it does. I feel that it, it truly goes into a acknowledgement. And what I mean by that is, uh, here, here's a great example. I don't give a damn about being named, you know, CEO of the year or CEO of this. What's important to me are the awards that we've won based on culture, you know, best place to work in Austin, because it's a, it's a blind survey that our tribe members, we call ourselves a, a tribe that our tribe members take and based on their feedback is how we rank. And when we hit number one in Austin, that's huge because, oh, wow, we are doing something right. So the, the approach is all the little things. I say stuff like this. No one works for me. People work with me. No one's boss. Three letters after my name don't don't mean anything. Uh, if you are in leadership in this company, you are a direct support. We don't you don't have direct reports. Nobody's reporting to you. Your role is to support people because you're in leadership. So it's a whole mentality that you take on of the acknowledgments, the you know all, all the the awards and all. Meaningless. The, the goal for me is how do we create this incredible company culture where people are just knocking down the door to want to work here, uh, where people can sit back and say, wow, I, you know, even if I don't want to, I can retire from this company where we put people first. When last year in 2020, when we went shelter in place in March, you know this, most companies in America took massive revenue hits. We were no different. Two days after we made the announcement to shelter in place, I announced to the company, I said, look, regardless of what happens, no one in this company will be laid off because of this virus. And it was important to me that we do that because in that moment, people needed stability. They needed reassurance because we had uh, people who had just had babies, had just bought homes, people whose partners and spouses were being laid off and furloughed. So I can only imagine what it was like to sit at home and like, oh my God, what's going to happen with us? So I wanted people to know you were safe. If nothing else, you were safe here. No one will be laid off. And I remember sitting back like, all right, now we got to pull that off. Now we got to make that happen. And I'll be damned, CK, 2020 was our best year in company history. Yes, that's awesome. I love it. So when you when you watch other company leaders, because I know you 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 know you speak at an EO and you speak to other entrepreneurs all the time, how do you discern when somebody like you, who's the real deal, who's who's you know basically flipped the org chart and you know be in the bottom to serve everyone <laughs> else? How do you ensure that well, one, your executive follows suit as well, not just you know, say, yeah, 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 I get it, but still do, you know, wanting to the, the egoic stroke. And then also, how do you look at other entrepreneurs who, uh, who may say these pretty words, but not necessarily being that, like, how do you discern someone who's an imposter servant leader versus an authentic servant leader? So we, we have the incredible position that, you know, every, every Monday we have our executive meeting. So in, in that executive meeting, 
you know, there, there's accountability. There's you, you're, we, you are living by the principles and values uh, of this company. And if you're not, then you're, you're not a fit for, for the role. So those Monday morning meetings, every Monday, we all, it, it's, it's all about um, ego checking, making sure that, that we're in service uh, of the, the tribe and, and the company. Again, I don't really care that you're in leadership. That just means you you serve and support. Great. Um, it's it's all about the people that you serve and support. When I'm out in in public or I'm meeting other executives, or, or I'm never really interested in those individuals. I'm more interested in their executive teams or the people who they work with because I feel like okay, if you're doing what you're saying you're doing, it will show with, with them. J- just like this. Here's here's a great one. Um, everyone celebrates Jeff Bezos and as, as they should, he was the founder. He was on his hands and knees out there, you know, putting books in, in boxes and, and I get it, but very few people, if I say the name, Jeff Wilkie know who that is. Jeff Wilkie was, was, uh, Jeff Bezos's president of the company since like 98. Mm. So, so much of that success that you see it wasn't just Jeff Bezos. It was Jeff Wilkie and all those people who were there that contributed over the over the years. I've always said this. CEOs, in my opinion, are over-celebrated. It, it takes a team of people to execute. Yes, CEOs set some direction. Yes, CEOs make some decisions. But you've got to have the right people in place to execute. If you don't have the right people... None of it matters. Yeah. Um, you don't know this, but I, I, I used to be a, the, the chief culture officer of a, of a startup. We, we went from idea to 200 plus people. And um, so everything that you said definitely resonates very deeply with me. Uh, people, we are what we make. And if the CEO or the founder, you know, have the right alignment, right? The clear idea of the North Star, as well as the right team around them. Um, it's it makes it much much easier to succeed, and, yes. and then if you don't have the right fit, you know, uh, especially amongst the the founding teams, uh, it's very easy to no matter what amount of capital raise, the the direction you go is still going to be very misaligned, and then the chaos would be amplified further as well. Totally, totally, yeah. It, it's t- touch on that a little bit there um, when. When I, I you you said cap, capital raising, it, it it threw me off there for a second. So we're we're six years old, no debt, no loans, no venture capital, no private equity, and we're, and we're profitable. And I tell people all the time, I go, no, we're the real damn unicorn, not we work. And so because it's uh, in this world of profitability, you know, it, it's. I, I've just struggled to see why are companies celebrated that have never made a profit? Isn't the goal to make a profit? And, you know, you've got some massive names out there, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Slacks have never made a damn dime. And that's mind blowing to, to me. Um, but it, and to, to your point as well, um, when, when we're talking about the mindset uh, of people, the way you interact in, in leadership, I will say, if I had to say I was influential in something, it's the words that we speak. We literally have an internal 
uh, language Bible. Everyone mm. knows. Everyone knows. We're not saying hope, wish, or luck. That mm. will that doesn't come out of anybody's mouth in, the, in, the, in this company. That's a non-negotiable. Non-negotiable does not. We we actually have a language Bible. Even this. Th- think about this for a second. I know you've heard this. You can see it on TV commercials. You can say, you know, customer satisfaction is our number one driver. Customer satisfaction. Think about this for a second. If my wife goes to girls night tonight and she's sitting there with five ladies and someone said, hey, how's your husband? If my wife said, oh, he's he's a satisfactory husband. I'm going to be pissed off. I don't want to be a satisfactory (laughs) husband. If someone says, hey, how's your dad? Is he a good dad? I satisfactory, but it's the damnest thing. In business, we're striving for customer satisfaction is our number one goal. Really? Like, think of the mentality of that. I don't want anyone in here to be satisfied. I want people to be fulfilled. I want people to be happy. We're, we're striving for customer fulfillment, we're not striving for satisfaction. What a low bar that is. Mm. Awesome. Are there other tactical things that you could share? You know, other maybe practices or how you run meetings or things like that as a way to cultivate this empathy, this desire for service more. You came from a very different place and, and basically everyone had their own journey. So in company settings, everyone's going to have different skill sets, right? How do you, you know, um, escalate and, and towards this mastery of the skills around empathy and compassion and service? So I, I, I pride myself on operating from a very common sense third grade level. You know, one of our company principles is ask questions. I don't believe there's a dumb or stupid question. I, I got to give love to my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dedeck. She said there was no dumb or stupid question. Man, I've been asking questions ever since. I built Is a that career. the teacher that threw the shoes at you? No, that was Mrs. Porter. <laughs> that was ninth grade English. Um, no, Mrs. You were a trouble kid since oh, you were very yeah, young. Yeah, she didn't mess around. But yeah, Mrs. Dedek said there's no dumb or stupid question. I've been asking questions ever since, man. I built a career on asking questions. And so the culture here, you, you know this, and, and I say this to people in interviews. Everyone has worked at a company where you can get fired for asking too many questions. Everyone's worked at one of those places. Here, you can literally get fired for not asking enough questions. If if you make a mistake and it's by way of you didn't ask a question because you didn't want to look dumb or stupid, you're not a culture fit. Because I will sit in meetings. You, you saw this firsthand. So this isn't just me preaching you know, rhetoric. You saw when you said bravado. I don't even know what that means. I sit in meetings still. People have gone to Harvard, Duke Law School, University of Chicago. I'm sitting in meetings and I'll say, oh, time out. What's that mean? Tell me what that word means. And we'll, I'll stop a meeting. So I'll understand. And I want people to realize I'll stop a meeting to ask a question. Everyone should stop a meeting to, to ask a question if you don't know what it means. More importantly, like I said, I, I operate from a third grade common sense level. Mm-hmm. Every everyone's going to sit here and go, oh man, yeah, that's that's true. When I say this, how many times have you been sitting in a room and you wanted to ask a question, and you didn't ask a question, and then someone else asked your question, and you thought, oh good, I'm glad they asked that. Every time you have a question, there are three to five other people in the room that have the same question, 
And the bigger the room, the more people have the same question. So when the question pops in your mind, ask the damn question. Uh, so I'm very big from a culture standpoint on asking questions. Optimism is one of our, our values. Putting people first, impeccable attention to detail, um, things that you don't actually learn in school are things that have served me uh, very well. Here's another word from a, a customer standpoint. People will pay us up to $120,000 to publish their book. People are not paying us to think. They're paying us to know. Mm. And so, so when we're on, the, on a call with an author, when we're interacting with an author, no, 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 don't you dare say think. They're not paying us to think. They're paying us to know. And mm. people, people have said, well, what, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to give you the, the ultimate example. CK, if you and I right now decide we're going to go climb Mount Everest, it's about $80,000 to hire a tour guide, a.k.a. Sherpa, and they're going to take us up this mountain. So you and I are throwing on our backpacks. We're high-fiving like, yeah, we're going to knock it out. We're going, going up the mountain, whatever. And then we turn to the Sherpa and we say, hey, are we going this way? If that Sherpa says, no, I think we're going to go, well, hold the hell on. I'm dropping my backpack. I'm like, what do you mean you think? I want to be told. No, we're going this way, weather permitting, we're going to base camp here, weather permitting, we're going here, and if the weather gets too bad, we're coming back down this way. I'm not paying you $80,000 to think, I'm paying you $80,000 to know. Yeah, and you want someone with certainty. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who is not wishy-washy exactly. about uh, the approach. So, yeah. it, little things like that. It, it, it's all little things added up that, that make the culture, that make the difference, that set the tone. There's no one big brick or, or rock or, or anything like that. It's all the little things that you have implemented and you do it with consistency. The con if I had to say there was one word, if, if people want to say, well, what's the one thing? Consistency. You have to consistently execute on those things. Was there a mistake that, that you made that really cement that those lessons? Um, you know, business lessons. <laughs> you want to know? You want to know where? Okay. Yeah. Um, my uncle Bobby, when I lived with him, he took me in because nobody else, I, I had nowhere else to go. So he took me in. And my uncle Bobby used to own uh, duplexes, rental homes. Mm. And this is back, you know, Section 8 welfare. And back in the day, there were no guidelines. Like people could just treat the house like shit. And then when they moved, you know, they didn't have any guidelines. You didn't get kicked out of the Section 8 program. Today you get kicked out of the program. But anyway, so people would move out of these houses. And CK, they were horrible. Imagine the, the worst episodes of hoarders, you know, dirty diapers stacked up in the corner, rancid food in the refrigerator. They were just nasty. Oh my God, you nasty. just a picture in my mind. Yes. And so my uncle Bobby would say, okay, you guys need to go clean, uh, clean out the houses. So he dropped myself off and a couple of my cousins and literally he'd go play golf and he'd leave us there and he'd tell us, okay, you know, you, I'll, I'll be back in four hours, six hours. And so we had to clean everything. And that is where I learned impeccable attention to detail. So my uncle Bobby would show back up and, and you know, he'd check, is there any dust or crumbs in the corner? He'd walk through, look at the floors and, and just check everything. On this one occasion there, CK, there was a, such a fine crack 
in one of the windows. Like you couldn't even see it. It was in the corner. And he goes, hey, how come you guys didn't take this window out? And I'm like, Uncle Bobby, you can't even see it. He says, what this means here also represents what's in there. So if I can see it from out here, that means the inside of this house isn't clean as well. And he said, you need to have attention to detail in everything you do. And that stuck with me. And I, I thought to myself, wow. So even now, I walk around. It's, it's one of our principles in the company, by way of Uncle Bobby, impeccable attention to detail. If, if I'm in the uh, restroom and there's other offices here in our, our building and there's paper towels on the floor, I pick them up, put them in the trash. What, am I so great that I can't bend over for two seconds and pick up some uh, paper towels and put them in the trash? So, yeah, impeccable attention to detail. And that, that's a lesson that I learned. It didn't come from business. It, it literally came from my Uncle Bobby. And, and I teach my, my kids that. They run around the house all the time. Impeccable attention to detail. So it, it's, I feel that it, is, it has served me very well. Do you, um, so this is a it's totally a curious question. Um, do you, so my, my, some of my CEO friends would basically intentionally put themselves in hard, really difficult situations. So you might, for, for me, it's like ayahuasca ceremonies and things like that, just physically intense Spartan race, ice bath, right? This type of situations, some others that will basically become homeless for, for a couple of weeks. Uh, some random which, city which I got to say, CK, which is bullshit because you, when you know that you've got 25 grand in the bank, hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars in, in the bank, you're never really truly homeless. You're not putting your, you, you know, that there is an end to what you're doing. I've always been intrigued by people saying, oh, well, I want to experience what it's like to be homeless when you don't have anywhere to go and you don't have any money, then you're homeless. When you know that you can get up off that park bench at any given moment and go home, you're not homeless. You're just choosing to be in a situation. Right, the circumstances, but not the actual experience of desperation, things like that. Exactly, and that's, sure. the, that's the homeless problem is when, I mean, and I guess why I take offense to it is because when I was 13 and I was on that bus stop and all I had was that little suitcase, I was homeless. There, there's, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. My mother, I, my mother was in Texas. She didn't know where I was. My dad was in England. He didn't know where I was. I had nowhere to go. So when I hear CEOs role play being homeless, I'm like, man, get the hell out of here. <laughs> I, I, I managed to get a reaction out of you. Yeah, you so did. <laughs> I did. I did. So maybe, maybe let me phrase it in a different way. Are there things that you put your executives or your kids in a simulated environment so then they can have maybe not the actual experience, but a simulated experience of hardship or adversity or, you know, difficulties or challenges such that they would have more wisdom and insights and, and gratitude, anything like that? I'll, I'll, I haven't done it with my, my children yet. Like I said, my oldest is seven. Uh, so I haven't done it with them yet. I, I very much plan to, but here with, with the executive team, uh, constantly I'll, I'll say, I'll make up a scenario. Okay. So this, this, this happened. So-and-so resigned, whatever, uh, can't get a hold of me. What are you going to do? You know, slack me the plan. What, what's that look like? 
how are you going to execute this? What, what are you going to do? Uh, this, this past Monday, I literally, I sat there, I said, hey, uh, serious question for you all. If I resign, who's going to take over the CEO responsibility? What are you guys going to do? <laughs> I got some interesting answers. One person said, shit, I'm out. <laughs> I said, I'm That's out. flattering. Right. I said, I'm, I'm out. And, and uh, so someone else said, well, I'm going to try to figure out how we get you back first. Um, but then I said, okay, put all that aside. What do you all do? And, and what was interesting is like, well, we probably end up having to bring someone in from the, the outside. I said, okay, so then what? And, and I took them through this. I said, you got to remember, our company has been built on its current structure. I said, if you go bring someone from the outside, then you also have to realize that you're going to have an exodus of people who are like, well, uh-uh, that's not what I signed up for. They don't know this person. That person doesn't know the culture. And you could see their face like, oh, never thought of that. And, it, and so we, we'll go through scenarios like that uh, of really uh, testing the thought process. How would you execute this? What would you do? Um, but I, I don't know. I've not put them in any type of uh, ayahuasca situations or anything like that. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm being half serious when I, when I ask this question because adversity reveals one's character. Mm -hmm. And you came out shiny and bright in spite of all the serious challenges and molestations and, you know, people being violent at you and so forth. So even though it's not the real deal, things like Spartan rays or, you know, ice bath, these type of like intense type things does give people glimpses or you even glimpses of like, oh, okay. So this is, you know, how they're alike on their adversity kind of a thing. So hence why that question. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Think about this last year, CK, the virus disruption, the protest, the election, current time. I don't feel the need to put the team under any additional stresses. Sure. Yeah. It's it, what, what I'm looking for now is to create an environment of safety, support, um, consistency, and, and people, uh, again, world may be on fire, but all is well at Scribe. Mm. That's a very wise, uh, statement you just made right versus me being an emotional savant asking you about questions on challenges what you just made actually is a very wise statement you might if i ask you some rapid fire questions and we'll yeah, let's do it. is that cool with you thank yeah. you so much um what's so these questions came from the audience so what is once one of the best investments that you have ever made you could do oh, money man. time relationships etc so when you said investment, I'm going to give you the first thing that came to my mind. Sure. Um, because I don't see my wife as, as an investment. She's the, the greatest blessing I've ever had. And then second yeah. to that are my, my kids. But when, when you say investment to me, first thing I think of are, are stocks. So I got to, you saw how excited I got. Um, back in, man, what was this? 13, maybe 2013, American Airlines filed bankruptcy. 
And I was going through there. I, I love business. I love studying. Why did this happen? What was going on? Why did the CEOs make this decision? So I just, I'm a student of business. I can watch documentaries on business all day. So American Airlines filed bankruptcy. And I'm like, damn, another one's going down. TWA went out, Pan Am went out. Now American Airlines, what's going on? So I started studying their financials. And I'm like, wait a minute. They've got $4 billion in cash. I'm like, they're not filing bankruptcy. And, and so I started digging into it. They couldn't come to terms with the pilot's union, the flight attendant's union. And hell, I didn't even know the baggage handlers had a union. So I'm like, oh, they can't get all this together. So they just said, okay, fine, we're going to file bankruptcy. Stock went down to like 25 cents. And I said, man, they're going to come out. They're going to come out of bankruptcy. I said, or somebody's going to buy them. So I got in and, and again, me being the, the ignorant person that I am, I don't say that as a negative. No one had ever taught me that you don't put 90% of your net worth in any one investment. <laughs> so at the time, I put 90% of my net worth into American Airlines. And I said, okay, I just need the stock to go to a dollar. And so the stock went up uh, a little over a dollar, and then it came out that uh, the bankruptcy attorney approved American Airlines to buy four more, uh, maybe four or either 40 more jets. And I said, see, I knew they weren't. Nobody's going to give you approval to buy new jets if you're going bankrupt. And then the stock jumped up to like three bucks. I was wow. like, oh, oh, sweet. Then the stock got up to about five. Then word came out that you uh, not United Airlines, it was a uh, U.S. Airway, U.S. Air was thinking about a merger. Boom, stock went up again. So long story short, um, got in at 35 cents, got out at 13 and change. Best, in, best investment I, I ever made. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. And then in here, here in the here in the office too, man, is scribe. We have a a channel called Investment Channel. I post, I literally post every stock that I buy, so everybody can see it. I tell you what I bought, how much I bought, when I'm selling it. So there's no bullshit of a like like a, a someone on one of the financial channels. Well, we recommend, but they don't actually own the stock. Nope. I show you how much I spent, how many I bought, when I'm going to sell it, what I'm going to do. Everyone in here knows. You know, I showed. In 2016, I bought, um, I think it was like 3,500 shares of Amazon for $749. And mm. it is documented on there and people see it. And you know, today, I think Amazon's probably like 3,300 a share. Wow. Uh that question wasn't meant for a specific investment, but I love I, I love the direction that you're taking it. <laughs> like Since I said, you when, have when you to say... When you uh, say investment to me, that's what came to my mind. So I, you said rapid fire. I'm thinking, okay, first thing comes to mind. That's the answer I'm giving. Yeah, since since you have Nassim Taleb on your on your as one of your clients, I think could be a really interesting exercise since you love investment so much to have, you know, um, angelist uh, like a like a syndicate, right? So you can essentially lead, have your own fund kind of a thing. Yeah. So people can invest with you. Um. Any, any other uh, investment that you wanted to mention in terms of time, you know, a money relationship, um, et cetera? Best, best investment is, is like I said, uh, 
creating your your three to five pillars. What is is it in life where you know you, you can't do it all? It's just a, a fact. I love golf, but until my kids are all old enough to take golf lessons and play with me, I'm not going to spend four and a half hours on a round of golf and take that away from my kids. So God, health, family, business, and investing. That's it. Man, if it doesn't fall within that, I don't do it. That's That right there is the best investment I've made in, in my life. There, you know, when people are running around talking, CK, you've heard me talk about this. Um, people are running around talking about work-life balance, work-life balance. Everybody attacks work. Don't work 60, 70 hours. Don't check your emails in the morning. Oh, we should only have a four-day work week. No one checks themselves on life. How about you not binge watch Friday through Sunday and have the nerve to wake up on Monday pissed because you haven't achieved your dreams and goals? How about you not go to the bar Thursday through Sunday, then be pissed on Monday because you haven't achieved your dreams or goals? So no one checks themselves on, on the life side of things. You know, don't complain that you're 20 pounds overweight, but you're, you're, you just went through the drive through at McDonald's. And, you know, when you say work-life balance, everyone attacks work. No one attacks what, what they're doing in life. And think about this. Last time you heard someone say, hmm, man, we binge studied our 401k all weekend. Never. I love how you're such an advocate and a defender for the higher self. Yeah. Right. Ver versus, you know, uh, giving you know, forgiveness to the human side, right? The, 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 the lower self sort of a thing. So I appreciate that. Uh, okay. Next question. Um, any specific advice for people who have been laid off due to COVID? Whew. Uh, yeah. These are all simple questions, of course. Yeah, that that one isn't at all because there, there's so many facets to it. You know, I, I dare to even try to answer that because my wife and I were just talking about this last night. If, if you're a single mom and you've got two kids and your kids are having to do distance learning and you got laid off, like, what are you supposed to do? So there's so many facets and answers and details that go into that. I, I don't know that I can even... Uh, touch that one. I, I will say this. I'll, I'll give one scenario. If I'm a single person, I got laid off. I'm collecting unemployment. Man, I'm studying every damn thing I can get my hands on uh, for the craft that that I'm interested in, be it marketing, be it investing, be it what, whatever it is, man, eight, eight hours a day. I, I'm uh, you know, I'm obviously sending out my resumes. I'm trying, trying to, to find employment, but the rest of the time, Oh man, I'm I'm doing nothing but immersing myself into the craft that that I want to be an expert at. Mm, beautiful, thank you. What does JT do when feeling unfocused? Hmm, when feeling unfocused, when I'm here at the office, I'll walk around and look about you can see part of it behind me so we've got this massive wall in the conference room it's a, we call it the uh, the stadium and it's nothing but the books we've published in here i'll walk around and look at what we've accomplished you know this company was founded in tucker's condo and i remember i started with him in, in going to his condo to, to uh, for the company and i look at what we've become now how many people we have the the year we had last year um you know we we Short answer, I focus in on what we've accomplished 
as a focal point to know what can be done. And, and that's where that, that brings me back to, to be able to, to focus uh, even when I, so that's what I do when I'm here at the office, I'll walk around, I'll walk around upstairs, look at what we've accomplished. I see how many people we, we've hired and I get to work with. And that helps me bring me back to that perspective and gives me focus when I'm at home. Um, this is going to sound weird. I sit in parts of the house that most people wouldn't. I go sit in a corner of the house that for what, there's no need to sit there, but I look at the house from a different angle. Uh, I may go sit in my daughter's bedroom and look at the house from a different angle. Uh, I, it, it's always attached to gratitude. Gratitude brings me back to focus in, in is the, the, the short answer. Uh, even, even when I go outside, man, to take out the trash in the garage, I look at the fact that, you know, there's two cars in there, three car garage. Um, I, I, I admire my garage. It's just a garage, you know? Yeah. It's, it's got the, the, the nice floor and stuff like that, but, uh, I'm thankful I, I have a garage. And so uh, gratitude always gets me refocused. Thank you for that. When you're dealing with someone else who may, who may feel a little entitled, who may, who may forget about this gratitude thing that you talked about, how do you gently and kindly remind them about you know, being grateful or, or you don't, you, or, or you don't do it so gently. I, I'm not always very gentle about that one. Um, because none of us are entitled to anything. And it, it's for me, life is a, is a, a true blessing and, and we're not entitled to tomorrow. So if you get it, it's a blessing, take advantage of it, make the most of it. Um, so what do you say to them though? You just, you say exactly that? Yes, I, I, I say that. And, and sometimes I do, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you one in, in my, in, when I interview. So, so everyone who gets hired into the company has to be interviewed by me. I'm the last person that you speak to before you're hired. And I always ask people, I said, um, okay, it, m most of the people have done some type of research on my background. So they know, you know, some of the story. I said, okay, you, you know my, my background, you know where I come from, fractured, blah, blah, blah. I said, now give me the hardest thing you've ever overcome. I said, and don't tell me it was a thesis paper when you were getting your degree. I don't hear that shit. I said, give me, you know, <laughs> give me, give me the hardest thing you've ever give overcome. Give me the real deal. Yeah. yeah. And, and then what, what, what's interesting is because immediately they start, they, they realize they're in a place where, oh, he led with, you know, my background. So they can't come with some little soft ass story. So they're going to have to dig deep and give me something. And depending on what it is, that that really shares a lot uh, about this person. I remember one time we did a group interview and it was the only time we ever did it. We did a group interview and I went around the room and I asked everyone in the room, I said, hey, why do you think you're here? Why do you how do you think you made it to this point of the interview? And I remember one lady said she goes because I went to yell and I was like, Oh, Oh, I, I, there, there was such a part of me that just wanted to write them. Like, you just need to go ahead and leave now. <laughs> no, you were polite. You were polite. Yeah, I, I let her, I let her finish out the interview, but I'm like, you realize that has zero to do with you, especially with me. Like that holds no bearing on you being here whatsoever. Oh my gosh.
That's a funny story. Thank you for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question, then we'll complete. Um, go, 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 go two more, CK. I'm sure you had two more there. Oh, man. I, dude, I could speak to you for hours. All right. All right yeah, let's do two more, man. Let's you do two are more. Uh, just, you know, wellspring of wisdom. <laughs> so, what are some bad recommendations you hear out there for young professionals? Mm. Oh, that, that just like drive you like, oh my God, I can't believe these people are giving out such bad advice that makes you skin crawl, that kind of advice. It's the, the, the here's what immediately popped in my head. Like I said, rapid fire questions. I'm giving you the first thing that comes to my mind. I was the, when I was the president of the software company, uh, we were, I think they were having like a hackathon or something one night. And I hung out. Obviously, I wasn't hacking shit, but I was hanging out with everybody. And, and, I love uh, that. I weren't hacking shit. I wasn't hacking shit. <laughs> so um, yeah, I was hacking up some pizza or something. <laughs> but uh, one of the guys there, he heard me say, I go, look, man, the ultimate goal is to create a company where people can retire from. I said, that's the ultimate goal. I said, if you go back to our grandparents, our great-grandparents, man, they worked at jobs 34 years. I go, no one does that anymore. Now, people used to actually pay off 30-year mortgages. No one does that anymore. The average person is in a home five and a half years. That's sad. When you think about the memories that are made in a house, the Christmases, the Thanksgivings, the birthdays. Um, but then he said to me, he goes, oh, man, I'm so relieved. And I go, why? He goes, my guidance counselor told me that uh, I should find a new job every two years. Uh, and he and I said, how long have you been here now? He said, like, 18 months. I had already started looking. I'm like, why would someone give you that dumbass advice if you find a great place that you love working? If you're making the salary that you enjoy, you love the people you work, why would you leave? And he goes, well, I, I thought that I was supposed to. And I'm like, oh, no. I go, uh-uh. That's, I said, that's some horrible advice. So that was the first thing that, that I thought about. A matter of fact, I was talking to a person just yesterday uh, one of our tribe members asked me if I'd speak to her cousin and their cousin called me and he said that uh, he was thinking about leaving. I said, how long have you been at the company? He said, three and a half years. I said, how old are you? He said, 28. I said, man, you need to stay till, you, till you're at the company for five years. And he said, why? I said, people your age right now? I said, you guys have worked at seven different places by the time you're 28 years old. I said, when you're 30 and you've been there five years, you can walk into an interview and say things that other people can't. You're loyal. Mm -hmm. You're, you're loyal. You're you're looking for longevity. You're looking for a company you can grow with. I go, very few people can say that now. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, people, people say it, but the resume doesn't show it. Your resume will show it if you stay there five years. And he was like, wow, that's, I go, now, now you've, you've just increased your value in the marketplace just by staying there for five years. I said, you, you'll be 30. I said, 30. That's nothing. Mm. So I have a question personally. Mm -hmm. You effectively have two jobs. You have the role of a CEO and you're also very generous in going out and speak and speak to people like me as a as a speaker. How do you balance the two? Or like how do you reconcile in your mind to to do both? God do, do it well. God, health, family, business and investing. 
you, you prioritize, man. You you can't. Um, and and here's something you said. Uh, share some wisdom. There's no success without sacrifice. I don't care who you are. You you will sacrifice uh, for success. You have to. You cannot be successful without sacrifice. And I'll take it to the highest levels. Watch this. LeBron James. Everyone sees LeBron James, $100 million a year, has his own shoe, championships. But no one talks about that when LeBron James is on an 11-game road trip. He's not with his family. He's missing his his kids' um, uh, games and, and, and plays and activities. He's not there. He's not there for family dinner. He's not there to tuck them in. And so that's sacrifice. So it doesn't matter he's making $100 million. It's sacrifice. And people can sit there and say, oh, well, for $100 million, you know, I do. Well, that's great. But you know what? You can't recreate the the, birth, the actual birthday. You can't, I don't care how much money you have. You cannot recreate the actual birthday. And so he sacrifices. Now, I'll take it up a level. Look at these presidents, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama. When all three went into office, they all had young daughters. At the highest level, and we know the role of a president, they missed birthdays. They missed events. They missed holidays. They missed family dinners. There is zero success without sacrifice. You will have to sacrifice something. The goal in life is to find the things that are most meaningful to you and be cutthroat with everything else. Don't let it get in the way. Don't, don't, don't do this. Don't go to dinner with your friend that you haven't seen in, in three months and you're, you're enjoying them. Oh gosh, it's CK, I haven't seen you in forever, man. How you doing? Whatever. And then your food comes out and you actually have the nerve to sit there and take three pictures of your food because you're going to post it on Instagram. And we all know you never get the first one right. So you take three pictures of it. <laughs> you post it on whatever social media uh, platform. Then you set your phone down. So CK, man, what have you been up to? Da, da, da. And then what do I do? I pick my phone up. Oh, I got a like. Oh, sweet, sweet. So I put it back down. Oh, so, so what else, man? What else is going on? Then I pick it up. God forbid I get a comment. Oh, now I got to, you know, now I got to say something. What the hell? One, mm. nobody gives a fuck what you're eating for lunch. I don't care. You're wasting quality time with that individual, spending time connecting with that person, showing them you appreciate the fact that they took time out of their day to spend with you yeah. and, you're, and you're posting a picture of your food. It's still, in my mind, it's the ultimate gift. Yes. The, pre the presence and the time. Time. They can never, ever get back. You can always, always make more money. Can't can get always. back the time. I can always make more money, man, but I cannot get back more time. And it's for me, man, having my my four children, it's like having a human calendar. You just see how fast they grow. My my seven-year-old, I can, it just seems like yesterday that she was the same age as the two-year-old. And here they are. I got a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. Man, you cannot get back the time. And I'll be damned if I'm going to waste mine telling you I just checked in at the gym or taking a picture of my food or or send, you know, posting a picture at, at the beach and saying gratitude. Well, if you're so grateful, enjoy the damn moment instead of trying to impress everybody that you're at the damn beach. <laughs> I, I look forward to hearing this particular point 
uh, as your kids grow up and because they're born into this whole world of social media and you know my status is based on the number of followers and mm -hmm. you know likes and so forth I, i'd be very curious to know how you'll be parenting your young kids man i'm gonna i'm gonna try to keep my kids off i say try my wife and i talk about this um if it's up to me my kids won't have a phone until somewhere maybe seventh eighth grade uh the other thing is and, and this isn't again some people won't agree with this my opinion it's what we do with our kids um you know my kids go to private christian school different set of values and and so for for me my goal is that my kids don't have a, a, a cell phone until they're in seventh grade. Um, I don't want them to be on social media and feel that their self-worth is built on how many likes they got. It, it, it's such bullshit. You know, I, I, do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? I don't give a damn if, if someone that is just connected to me on whatever social platform likes my post likes my outfit do you like it you know i tell i tell my daughter all the time she'll come out and she'll have an outfit and she'll say dad it, it, am i pretty i said yes but do you work hard i said because i know a lot of pretty people who don't work hard and that's not a good combination so do you work hard are you kind are you smart tell me that and she's like yes i said okay then you're pretty i love that always a chance to because you're acknowledging her for the effort versus the looks because looks she did really didn't have anything to do with she was giving this right gene versus the effort the kindness the gesticulation the words that's coming out of her own sovereign self her own agency rather than yep. this thing that's inherited thanks to the good-looking parents that she's got <laughs> every it's it's interesting man. every day uh, sometimes two, three times a day, my kids, they, I, I say, okay, what are your things? I'm smart. I'm great. I'm a leader. Hard work is greatness, positive attitude and stand up for yourself. And the, the, we have to, they have to recite those two, three times a day. Mm, I love it. Vaughn, JT, thank you so much for sharing so generously with us, with me, your presence, your time your hero's journey from the darkest places and to where you are today. I mean, honestly, I, I'm, I'm really, really inspired. Um, just the kindness that you exude, um, the presence you have, this, this fierce stance for agency, for sovereignty, that we can um, thrive in spite of whatever circumstances, challenges that comes our way. And you do it with kindness and generosity and respect. I just so appreciate you as a, as a new friend, as a, as a, as a guest, uh, and as someone that I, that I look up to. You inspire me to be even more open with my own past, with my own humanity as a teaching tool to share with others that they too can overcome or to achieve their dreams. Um, so thank you so much for being the light. My man, CK, uh, it incredibly humbling to to hear that i, I appreciate it this was this was good good stuff man it's great conversation i feel like we uh, without the food we got to go to lunch together <laughs> for sure for sure um i look forward to seeing you in person and hopefully at some point we get to do this again excellent my man you you tell me when we'll make it happen